know, I've been around a long time. I know how hard this is. From the political science department at UW-Madison. Am I exasperated? Absolutely, I'm exasperated. I'm Adam Wigger. This country's gone through tough times before, and we're going to do it again. And I'm Sam Beisman. This is more work than in my previous life. I thought it would be easier. And this is 1050 Basketball. Today on 1050 Bascom, we are grateful to have the opportunity to talk to Professor Melanie Murchison, a lecturer in the Center for Law, Society, and Justice. Melanie walked us through the Trump administration's legal challenge to the 2020 presidential election and offered her take on the role the media plays in protecting the perceived legitimacy of the American electoral system. She also talked about Oregon becoming the first state to vote to decriminalize all drugs and the potential impact of this choice on the criminal justice system. Professor Murchison also shared her insights on extremist organizations' efforts to build support and spread their views through social media in the context of First Amendment issues. We learned so much from this conversation with Professor Murchison, and we hope you will too. First things first... Thank you so much for joining us today. You are so welcome. Before we get into any of the topics that we want to cover, can you tell our listeners just a little bit about yourself, like where you grew up, you know, how you have gotten to where you are today? Absolutely. So my name is Dr. Melanie Murchison. I am from Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada. That's where I am at the moment as well. Uh, I'm back in Winnipeg. I am teaching for the University of Wisconsin-Madison online at the moment. Two courses, one political science, law, politics, and society, and one gender, crime, and justice that's cross-listed through legal studies, as well as sociology and gender and women's studies. So I've been at the University of Wisconsin since 2015. So this is my fifth year, but I lived in Canada my whole life up until I was 23 and I moved to Northern Ireland to do my PhD. And I actually had uh, just come back from Northern Ireland to Winnipeg and I was writing up my PhD when I got the job uh, at Madison. So I've had a lot of great opportunities to travel and study in a number of different countries. And I thought, you know, why not head down to a state school in the US and see what it was all about? Indeed. And uh, I'm sure the background in Canada probably has you well prepared for some of the Wisconsin winters that we face every here and there. It's We're probably like Miami to all y'all up in Winnipeg. Yeah, yeah, you are. So This is what I was not prepared for when I moved to Wisconsin. You guys get more snow than we do sometimes, which I was not prepared with, but it's because you're right close to the Great Lakes. So you get like wet, heavy, damp, like heavy to shovel snow. We get sort of like light, airy, puffy, North Pole like snow. So I did not like shoveling when I was in Wisconsin. But yeah, like right now it is minus eight Celsius. So that's probably 20-ish. So not exactly the Bahamas up here, but uh, at least I was prepared. You are you are correct. I was prepared. I knew what I was getting into. Well, speaking of kind of knowing what you're getting into or just your journey as to where you are now, could you paint us a picture of yourself in high school? What were what were you kind of like then? Were you brainy, athletic, or even interested in politics at that point? And 
Did you always know that you wanted to be a college professor or did you kind of have some other dream jobs that you were thinking about pursuing at the time? In high school, I was definitely the brainy nerd kid. I, and I, you know, I'm saying that to myself. So, you know, nerds are allowed to call ourselves nerds. If you're not a nerd, you don't get to call us that. But yeah, I was, I was a kid who was incredibly interested in politics. I was incredibly interested in why society worked the way it did, or in some instances didn't work. I enjoyed politics. I took world history and I took a few other courses on sort of the political sphere, different law and politics courses in high school that I really enjoyed. I also took a few courses in in my undergrad that related to politics that I really like. But the, the sort of founding moment for me getting into politics was the 2004 election, the United States election in 2004, where we had famously the recount. Uh, we have a number of days where there's no clear president. Uh, I was in high school at the time, and I found the whole situation fascinating. This idea that we don't know who the leader of the free world is going to be, that 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 was a thing because of the Electoral College and because of the way that the U.S. uh, system works to elect a president, I couldn't fathom that. And so that was really my my gateway into this sort of love of the nuances and the quirks, as I call them, of the U.S. political system. And so I went to university and I thought, this is all well and good and I'm going to be a lawyer. And that's that's the plan. We're going to go to law school. We're going to maybe teach law after a few years practicing. But I, I changed my mind on that. And I, I think the story of why I changed my mind actually is kind of interesting. So I had I endeavored to be a law professor. And I was taking a class called criminal law. I loved it. I loved everything about it. It was taught by a man named Richard Jockelson, who had a PhD in law, but had also gone and gotten a JD. And I thought, you know, why are you here? <laughs> why are you teaching us? Why aren't you saving the world and doing all of these cool things and practicing law? And he said to me, you know, Melanie, law, the practice of law is not anywhere near as interesting or as fun or as enthralling as you might think it is. And I was really taken aback by that. I felt like, what do you mean? I've watched hundreds of order, like episodes of Law and Order SVU. I know. I'll like, don't you be telling me about how boring law is. And he said, no, no, really. He said, because the things you are interested in is academic inquiry. You have questions. You want to study. You want to learn these things. You want to get to teach these things. This is a lawyer. You are in charge of working to do whatever your client wants you to do. It has nothing to do with what you're interested in doing or what you may think are some gaps that are worth exploring. A lawyer says that they will do basically what's in their client's interest at their client's behest. So if your client says jump, you're jumping. And you're jumping on their schedule and they're gonna want what they want yesterday. And it's not a particularly fun life. And I really took that to heart. And I I had already written the LSAT, I had already gotten ready to apply to law school. And I thought, you know what? Maybe not. Like law school is not going to go anywhere. Let's uh, let's do this final honors year of an undergrad and see if if law really is all that it's cracked up to be. And the rest is history. I never never applied to a law school after that, and never went to a law school. Well, I I know a lot of students are struggling right now with that exact question. Like, yes, you know, am do I want to go to law school? Is law something that I want to practice? 
So yes. can you talk through then your the program that you found with your PhD in law and like how that differs from like a traditional law education? Yeah. So first of all, I think you're absolutely right. A lot of students come into at least our legal studies major with this grand plan of I'm going to do this four-year degree and I'm going to go to law school and I'm going to be a lawyer and it's going to be great. And when you sit down with them in you know office hours or just having a chat and say, you know, why do you want to go to law school? Frequently, you'll get answers like, I want to help people. I want to make a difference. I'm really passionate about an issue like immigration or mental health treatment or you know drug treatment. I say, awesome. Why do you think you need a law degree? What is it about a law degree that you think you know will make those passions stronger, will enable you to do something with those passions? And they frequently don't know, right? So I think what happens is we get this idea that if we want to do something that touches on law or in some way relates to the legal system or the criminal justice system, that we should go and all be lawyers. And I really push back on that notion. I think that so much good can come from individuals working within the system that, you know, you don't need a law degree. If you want to be someone who engages in mental health supports, you can work as a probation officer, you can work as a parole officer, you can work as an advocate, you can do mental health outreach work, you can be very auxiliary doesn't mean you have to work within the criminal justice system either. I sometimes hear students saying, you know, I think the system is really corrupt. I think it's problematic. Absolutely fine. You can work auxiliary to the system. You can work for change within the system. And you will not have a louder voice just because you have a few extra letters at the end of your name. And so for a lot of students, I say, you know, if you want to practice law, if your dream is writing a contract or writing down a will or engaging in real estate transactions, Uh, or litigating. For some people, that absolutely is. Those are the people that should go to law school. But if you just have a passion for law and for sort of academic inquiry, or for things like social justice, or to make a difference in the community, I, I really encourage students that there are so many ways to do that. And maybe that's a master's in social work. Maybe that's a post grad program that you can get training on through your employer. Uh, maybe it's you know taking a year off and volunteering or um, working or engaging in an internship and seeing, even if you're just ruling things out. Like I tell students all the time, go and and work in a law office. You know, take a three months, six months, however you think you want to go, and you know apply, do it for a little while, and and many students come back to me and say why did I think I wanted to do that? Like, what part of this did I think would be fun? And they're just sitting there writing at all hours of the day and night. Yeah, yeah. That's And that's why shows like Law & Order SVU are so engaging and fun and entertaining is because they're not real. They don't adequately reflect, you know, what a day in the life of a police officer or district attorney is. And this is where we get into shows like Cops, right? I will have students say, oh, it'd be so much fun to be a police officer, right? I watch Cops all the time. Yeah, no, (laughs) first of all, no. And 90% of what you see on Cops makes up less than 5% of a police officer's day, right? The most of of the day is writing reports, is dealing with paperwork and timekeeping and record keeping and inputs and how many miles did you drive in the car today? Got to write that down, got to invoice. It's not this high drama. And so I think we really need, and, and our job that I don't think we do a, a good enough job, truthfully, as professors, is explaining to our students what jobs are out there with the credentials that you think you want to get. And not to underestimate the power of a bachelor's degree. 
there are phenomenal jobs that you can get with a bachelor's degree that don't require you to spend an extra $100,000 and three years of your life doing something that maybe truly isn't what you thought it would get you. And that's what the that's what the law PhD for me was. Um, the reason I did a PhD was because in my in my journey, after I finished my honors year, I said, what is the thing that I love? Like, I love the criminal justice system. I love politics. I love comparative law. What do I love? The thing I love is teaching. I love talking to students. I love engaging with students. I love seeing my students learn and get passionate about stuff um, and experience some some frustration with the way the system works and how it operates. And so I feel like I'm I'm much better suited to guide students along the way, um, to impart some of my love of the legal sphere, and that I can sort of live vicariously through all my students who go on to have much cooler jobs than me. Thank you for sharing that advice. I think um, it's part of the degree requirements for political science, actually, that you flirt with law school. So thank you for sharing that. Only but flirt. Don't date. No indeed. dating. Only flirt, of course. But finally, the last thing we want to ask you kind of related to these warm-up questions. As you mentioned before, you've spent time living both in Canada, Northern Ireland, but now you've been at the UW-Madison for a couple of years. So we're wondering maybe a bit more broadly than just kind of the composition of snow, what have been your thoughts on living and working in Madison? Not to say that the composition of snow isn't important, believe me, but just what have your thoughts been on the city and working and living here? Yeah, so Madison is a really, a really great town. It's smaller than I thought it was, actually, because I watched enough Big Ten football games growing up. We are good, good Canadian college football fans. And so because I saw 80,000 people in Camp Randall on a fairly regular basis, you're thinking, well, okay, stadium, maybe 10% of the population, extrapolate that out, probably a million people. And no, you find there's only actually 225,000 people who live full time in, in Madison. And so you're like, okay, it's actually a quarter of everybody who lives here is going to Camp Randall on Saturdays. Like, that's how that works. I love living in a college town. I love the passion of the students. I love the energy that they bring. Uh, I love having access to things like Camp Randall in true Canadian form, as is required by our constitution. I love hockey. Of course I do. I have to do it. Uh, big time fan. Shout out to the Winnipeg Jets. So I spent a lot of time uh, at the Kohl Center watching hockey, um, getting to see Tony Granato and some of the players up close, uh, some of whom have already been drafted. Uh, I love watching the women's game as well. So I just found that there were so many great activities and auxiliary um, opportunities in a college town that I had never thought of before in terms of exposure to all different types of, uh, of you know, sporting activities, but also um, this really sort of international community. Uh, and I've really enjoyed getting to, getting to explore that, uh, getting to see the city and, uh, and having a, a really good time doing it. Awesome. Now we'd really like to, you know, get into some more political legal questions. And the first one, no, we <laughs> you don't just want to ask me about my sports team for the snow. Right. All right. Fair enough. Fair. You know, we, we are recording this on Wednesday, 11, 11, you know, at almost four in the afternoon. And we are five days after president elect Biden was declared the winner by, you know, a majority of the news media but the trump administration is you know 
putting forward a bunch of legal arguments and cases that you know they're they're trying to change the outcome and they're or they're trying to they're trying to do something. What have you been making of their legal challenges as you know a legal scholar? So far, I would say that the legal challenge has really left something to be desired. The motions that were filed um, sort of quite quickly in states like Pennsylvania are not the type of cases that would be able to overturn this result. The questions that they're asking about some of the ballots that they perceive as being late or that they believe were mailed improperly, we're talking about a fraction of the number of ballots it would it would require. And even if, let's say, the Trump campaign had a case that some ballots had been mailed late or that they arrived late or that they were in other ways non-reconcilable, either for signature purposes or you know, the provisional ballots having some sort of outstanding issue. Even if we took that on face value and said, yeah, you know, maybe there's a case there, which we haven't seen the evidence of, but let's, you know, I'll give the president the benefit of the doubt. Maybe he's seen something I haven't. It still wouldn't change the result. And so Right now, I think of a lot of Americans are frustrated, and rightly so, in that the president needs to sort of put up or shut up at this point. He needs to clearly demonstrate where the fraud that he believes occurred has been occurring. He has suggested that Americans uh, were posting their ballots after they had died, or that, you know, ballots are being processed that are just inherently problematic. I think the president needs to either clearly demonstrate that he has evidence of fraud, which no media organization or his lawyers have indicated, or he needs to recognize that this is an election that he lost. It was close, not as close as the election won in 2016 uh, against former Secretary of State Clinton, but that the transfer of power in a democracy is one of the most important and fundamental processes that we have. And I really think this process of continuing to complain, to suggest somehow that the results are illegitimate is, while perhaps not surprising, as he signaled he would do this uh, before the election happened, uh, it is exceptionally frustrating because I think elections are something that Americans should have confidence in, that they should feel are conducted fairly and neutrally without a predetermined agenda by any individual, the president or anybody else. And I think what the president is doing is really jeopardizing that. And so I applaud news media uh, for continuing to shine a light on this, to call President-elect Biden by that name. That is what he needs to be called. And I think it's been incredibly responsible, uh, even of, of news industry networks that I'm sometimes skeptical of um, because of their corporate profit motives and the way they seem to align themselves, refusing to even give airtime to some of the current president's complaints. Fox News, uh, a few days ago, decided that they would cut off the president, which is really almost unprecedented, uh, particularly for that network, uh, for its close relationship with the president, and to refuse to continue to air a broadcast uh, of his press secretary, knowing that what they were saying was false, that there was no evidence of any sort of misconduct or widespread fraud, and that reporting on that narrative or allowing that narrative to go on the news unchecked, regardless of what any pundit would say afterwards, is inherently harmful to American democracy. And so I do really applaud these news 
organizations uh, and reporters and journalists that are working so hard on this to uphold the truth and to require evidence, require documentation. Because if there is a legitimate concern, absolutely, the Supreme Court would be happy to hear it. We saw this in Bush v. Gore. Um, There were issues. Um, Now, we can debate whether or not those issues were presented the right way and the role of news media in that election. But I think that because of Bush v. Gore, we've really seen a change in the way the news networks behave um, and a real push for responsible, accurate, cautious election result interpretation. And so I I think that Americans should continue to request evidence uh, and make sure that they hold this president uh, to account. And if he's not able to provide that evidence, then we should proceed with the transition as outlined in the Constitution, which would allow President-elect Biden uh, to begin the process of transitioning into being the next president, including conducting things like background checks and having access to full vetting of the FBI's databases, which he currently does not, uh, as the transition team is not currently allowed access to any of those services because there has been no formal concession. And so that is something that is really threatening to potentially harm the American transition of power going forward. And to pull back a little bit from this election specifically and take a bit broader view on the American electoral process and last several election cycles, your legal training and just kind of general background is from Canada. And additionally, you have a long study of comparative law. So with this perspective, How do you view the American electoral process and last several election cycles kind of from a comparative law and politics perspective? Well, the American electoral process is very unique. There is no other Western democracy. There's no other country that elects their president the way the United States does. And so for that reason, it is particularly interesting to do comparisons and to sort of examine the way that the U.S. operates. So for some context, in Canada, we don't directly vote on our uh, head of state. So our our head of state officially uh, is Queen Elizabeth. We are still a Commonwealth country, so we still have uh, some uh, ceremonial roles for the monarchy. But for our prime minister, we elect what are called MPs or members of parliament. And so there are members of parliament in every region across Canada. And at a local level, you vote for your own member of parliament. And most people would vote for the member of parliament uh, from the party that they want to elect. So you would have a liberal MP, um, MP from the NDP, somebody running from the Green Party or the Progressive Conservative Party. And so you would likely vote for the party that you would like to see in power uh, through your MP. But If you liked an MP who was not necessarily your political party of choice, but because you thought they would do a better job at representing you, that would also be a common reason to vote for a particular MP. And the individual that becomes prime minister is the individual that has the highest number of members of parliament. Um, So you can still have minority governments or similar to what the U.S. does when uh, there's a sort of separation and a balance between the House and the Senate with different parties controlling each. That's what we have in Canada right now. So we have a minority liberal government. Uh, So uh, Justin Trudeau is our prime minister. And so this is a very different process. We also still count ballots by hand in Canada. 
Uh, we don't have these issues with machines and technology and, you know, this idea that they could be subject to potential interference from foreign governments, as we saw in 2016. We have eliminated that possibility where it's never really existed. We still have, you know, Facebook and we're still susceptible to disinformation the same way the United States would be. But the integrity of the election itself isn't in jeopardy the way it would be in the United States. And this this whole idea of the Electoral College, I think, is something that many people don't pay enough attention to. The Electoral College is a group of people who are designated as electors on behalf of their state. And so when we see John King at the magic wall going and saying, okay, well, Pennsylvania's 20 Electoral College uh, votes uh, is going to President Vice President-elect Biden, those are actually 20 people who are going to represent the state of Pennsylvania at a meeting uh, to determine who the next president is. And the idea that we would delegate this very small number, right? You need 270 electoral votes to win, so that you would designate just over 500 people who go and ultimately have the final in an election is kind of ludicrous in a lot of ways. And there have been faithless electors uh, or individuals who have chosen not to act the way their state went. There were several faithless electors in 2016, individuals who decided not to go uh, with President Trump and instead went for Hillary Clinton in the Electoral College, specifically because there was such a split between the Electoral College result and the popular vote. And so this is another thing that is quite unique to the United States, which is that you have a you can have an individual who loses the presidential election by the election of the electors in the Electoral College, but actually wins the popular vote. And so that has happened several times uh, in U.S. presidential elections and happened in 2016. And I think that also leaves some individuals uh, within the U.S. democracy feeling unrepresented and feeling that their votes don't matter. And so there is a process currently going on uh, in the U.S. looking to essentially overrule or uh, escape the Electoral College. And that is that states have started signing pacts with each other to vote the way the popular vote in their state goes, regardless of the Electoral College. And if you got to a number of states where you would actually have the correct number of Electoral College votes being determinative, um, then those states could all essentially say, we're going with a popular vote. We're not going with the way the Electoral College is working. And so that uh, currently has 190 Electoral College number in terms of representation. Again, you need to get to 270 if you're going to do anything to meaningfully change the election process. But it's something that states have been frustrated with enough that they've started to move in that direction. We also don't have this great disparity in Canada or in England or in Australia or New Zealand in terms of uh, the sort of old British Empire type countries with different states having a much greater or less say based on their population. So we know that you get two senators based on what state you're from, regardless of the population. But that means that the representation for the state of Idaho or the state of Wyoming is significantly different than that of New York or California or Texas. And that represents the same problem in the Electoral College, because you have to have at least two Electoral College votes. And while some states will have more, depending on population, um, you will never get to the same number in 
terms of uh, what an individual's vote in Wyoming means as opposed to what an individual vote in California means. And this gets magnified with the idea of these swing states or these purple states that sort of everything comes down to these purple states. And we were focused on Philadelphia in the lead up to this result being called for uh, President-elect Biden. In 2004, we were focused on a very small number of ballots out of Miami. And I think this frequently leaves Americans feeling disenfranchised, that their vote doesn't really matter, um, and that politicians don't need to come personally talk to them because their vote is all but guaranteed. And so we see this. Um, in Canada, you're going to have equal visitation from all parties. They're all going to campaign. They're all going to talk about their platforms. They're going to come see you. We also in Canada allow prisoners to vote, which is different than how the U.S. system works. Again, another uh, quirk about representation and who gets represented. Whereas, you know, for the U.S. political system, there's no real reason for a presidential candidate to go to California, right? Because the perception is, and it has held true for a number of years, that California will go blue regardless of just about who you nominate or what you do. And so we'll just assume that California will go blue and it won't matter. And so we'll use our resources elsewhere. And so this is one of the seeds, I think, that has led to the rise of disinformation um, and the rise of people being susceptible to untruths about the election. And I think that stems from a feeling of exclusion and isolation in the political process. Absolutely. We could make an entire podcast series, you know, just on that exact question. But, you know, one of the really interesting outcomes Thanks. of the election last week came out of Oregon and we have to confess, we looked at your Twitter beforehand and we saw you had linked to a Vox article, you know, retweeted yeah. a, a Vox article with this. But Oregon yeah. decriminalized all drugs. And we wanted to know your thoughts and your takes on this, you know, because anything to do with drugs obviously has to do with criminal justice and is so intertwined yeah. with, you know, race and poverty. So, yeah, what what was your take and what does this mean for your research? Yeah, sure. Um, so I am absolutely thrilled, over the moon, ecstatic about Oregonians being the first state in the United States that decided that all drugs, cocaine, heroin, methamphetamines, ecstasy, marijuana, mushrooms, psychedelics, all drugs will be decriminalized. This is a phenomenal outcome. This is something that social justice scholars and criminal justice scholars and critical race scholars have been advocating for decades. And the U.S. system, as it relates to drug offenses, is particularly punitive. The U.S. incarcerates the greatest number of individuals for drug offenses per capita anywhere in the world. The United States has the largest number of nonviolent offenders incarcerated around the world. The U.S. is consistently using harsh penalties like incarceration and long periods of incarceration for crimes that are really public health issues. We have come so much and come so far in terms of our understanding of addiction and the role of mental health in addiction and the role of victimization leading to addiction. And so addiction is a public health crisis. And for a long time, we have tried to incarcerate our way out of a public health crisis. And then we've all been surprised that it hasn't been working. Of course, it's not working, right? If I have mental health issues that have gone untreated, uh, or if I have an addictions issue that I have not received adequate treatment for, 
and I get arrested and I get incarcerated, it is not somehow magically easier for me to avoid drugs when I'm released. We don't release people uh, after incarceration with all sorts of resources and financing and program opportunities and jobs. We release people with less options than they had before, with more stigma than they had before. We're releasing them essentially into the exact same neighborhoods where they were engaging in criminality before. We haven't fixed any of their social supports. We haven't given them housing. We haven't given them any economic opportunities. But somehow we expect them to behave radically different, miraculously, once they're released. And this is a folly. This is never. This has never worked. It was never going to work. This ties into, you know, perhaps profit motives of the increasingly privatized prison system in the United States. The fact that private prisons operate to make money, right? They want to incarcerate more and more people. They want to incarcerate them for longer. They want to make sure that they have consistent resource pool from which to make income off of. And so that exploitive relationship uh, that has existed has been rife for types of injustice that have continued to exist. So the U.S. is not the first state uh, or country to have part of it decriminalize uh, or legalize all drugs. And this is one of the reasons why so many academic and, and other types of scholars have been pushing for this. So Portugal decriminalized all drugs in 2001. And this was incredibly revolutionary at the time. And it led to a lot of anger. It led to a lot of outrage. And the perception was uh, that essentially Portugal had just given up. They had high rates of drug use. They had high rates of auxiliary drug crime, things like theft, public endangerment, nuisance crimes, what we sometimes call victimless crimes. And the Portuguese public were really quite outraged at this, that we would just let people go and buy heroin if that's what they were going to do. But what happened was that we saw auxiliary crimes went down. We saw that mental health treatment went up. We saw that addictions treatment went up, that stigma went down, that individuals were being given an opportunity for resources and for social supports and to treat the source of the problem, which is that addiction. Right? Nobody wants to be a heroin addict. Nobody wants to be uh, a cocaine addict. They are not engaging in this process because they think it's a great time. They're engaging in this process because they don't have other social supports or resources or mechanisms to escape that. And so Oregon taking this measure, measure 110, will remove the criminal penalties. And some folks get really anxious about this um, when we talk about decriminalization, because they say, well, okay, I guess it's carte blanche for, you know, everybody to traffic in drugs, to use drugs, to engage in criminality. That is not the case. So we did not legalize the use of all drugs. We decriminalized them. So what that means is Oregon is going to remove criminal sanctions or criminal penalties. So things like prison time or probation orders, community service orders for possession of small amounts of illegal drugs. We did not decriminalize trafficking. We did not decriminalize large amounts of possession for the purpose of distribution. We in no way signaled our acceptance uh, with that behavior. But instead, we're saying to individuals who are caught with drugs on them, we can offer you a different option. Uh, and so the police aren't going to be spending their valuable time and resources looking to arrest you know, a kid with an ounce of cocaine. And instead, what they're going to do is if they find somebody using drugs or it comes to their attention that they have drugs on them, remember, they won't be looking for it because it's not an enforceable criminal offense, they are going to be two options. 
The first is going to be a $100 fine, which Portugal doesn't have. Um, and I'm not crazy about um, because I think we're essentially going to end up criminalizing poverty with this a little bit or a completed health assessment and an addiction recovery center. Now, this is what Portugal does. Portugal has a drug czar that oversees a Department of Public Health who conducts significant assessments for individuals experiencing addiction and allows individuals to access treatment. And I, I really never thought I would see the United States move to this method so quickly because of the public health infrastructure. Portugal has a single payer public health system that's financed by the government through tax revenue. And that makes this model much more efficient and effective because you're not worrying about insurance companies. You're not worrying about whether or not someone has the right level of coverage. What coverage does somebody need? How could we get private industry on board with our plans? But it seems like Oregon has committed a significant number of resources. They're using all of their revenue from marijuana sales, legal marijuana sales in Oregon and uh, taxes on places that sell marijuana. So some of the rent and auxiliary tax-based revenue to fund this model. And so it looks like it won't matter your insured status, whether or not you have any barriers to care, that if you need care, care will be offered to you. And so this is hugely exciting, particularly in, in relating to your last question or your last part of that question in terms of disadvantaged folks. We know that the police have disproportionately enforced drug laws in the United States that they have been a tool that has been weaponized against people of color. We know that the vast majority of individuals who come in contact with the criminal justice system for drug-based offenses are nonviolent people of color, which is incredibly damning. And the fact that Oregon has taken these steps to say, no, we're, we're not going to do this anymore. This hasn't worked. We're going to admit defeat and we're going to try something else, I think should absolutely be applauded. And to ask a quick follow-up on this issue, it seems that there's an emerging body of research, some of it coming from the UW-Madison, that there's actually a bit of bipartisan support for the decriminalization of drugs. Could you speak a little bit on where that comes from and what that means for the political viability of this issue? Bipartisan because the vast number of individuals have experienced addiction in some form. Uh, it might not be themselves. Um, but most people know somebody uh, who has addiction issues, whether that's with cigarettes, with alcohol, with illegal, currently illegal drugs, and they like that person. They don't think that person is irredeemable um, or somehow uh, needs to be ostracized and, and kicked out of society for the you know, greater part of the next five to 10 years. I, we see a, a similar shift with approval ratings for gay marriage is what actually started to happen in, in broad swaths of the country is you had a lot of individuals saying, I don't want to get gay married and gay marriage is not right for me. And this is not an issue that necessarily affects me. But, oh, my, my mailman, Joe, he's gay and I like him. And if he wants to get married, yeah, Joe should get married, right? Or at least have access to a civil union or be able to visit his partner in the hospital if he should get sick or be able to make legal decisions for him. And the other, the other area where we see, which typically we don't see necessarily bipartisan support, is finances. It is exceptionally expensive to incarcerate individuals. It costs $80,000 a year per inmate. I could think of a lot better ways to spend $80,000. And even if we've outsourced the cost of some prisons to private industry, we are still paying private industry for its service. And so if we're not incarcerating people, 
we will have a significant amount of revenue to which we could spend on public health. And yes, there might be a significant increase in terms of what we would need to spend using healthcare resources at first, right? Yes, it might cost maybe $90,000 a year the first year, but then it's only 60 the following year, and then it's 40. And then that person is back in the tax base and they're contributing to the roads and the schools and the buildings uh, within society. And so I think there's been a recognition uh, on both sides of the aisle that people are not irredeemable, people are fallible, and that we have much better ways to spend our economic resources than by incarcerating every person who has a substance abuse issue. Thank you for that rundown and explanation. I think that was a really holistic treatment of that whole issue. So thank you for giving us that. One more topic that I kind of want to shift on. Another recent article that you linked to that's kind of directly relevant to our contemporary moment was one from The Guardian that was talking about certain media best practices related to quarantining either dis or misinformation. And while the article specifically discussed this in the connotation of extremist groups like the Proud Boys, I think this also relates to a lot of the dis and misinformation that we're seeing just flowing freely on Facebook and other social media outlets. And even as you mentioned earlier, coming occasionally, or maybe a little bit more than occasionally, from traditional sources of reliance and power like the White House. So I'd like to just kind of broadly ask, not just about this strategic silence technique, but also how you think that either Facebook or other social media sites or the media should pursue different ways of curbing dis and misinformation. And if there's some legal resources in here that could help stop this spread. Yeah, so that's a great question. And there absolutely are. So I'm going to take uh, the question in a few parts. I'm going to start with the role of social media, because the thing that is important here, which I think many people don't know and have no reason to know about, is something called Section 230. So Section 230 is a section within the Communications Decency Act that is really integral to our regulation of the internet. And so this sounds like, okay, yeah, great, 230 fine, we have some sort of statute on something to do with social media and the internet, and that's fine. And it's from 1996. And who cares? Well, it matters because Section 230 is the piece that allows currently social media industries like Facebook, like Twitter, like Instagram to essentially be immune from consequences uh, regarding what gets posted on their site. And so Section 230 protections essentially give blanket immunity to web services, to websites, to web providers for the content that then gets posted on their site. And so for decades, there have been questions about if somebody creates a white supremacy page on a site owned by Yahoo, for example, what's Yahoo's responsibility? Does Yahoo have any responsibility? And if they do, where does it start and where does it stop? But this only grew with relation to social media, right? When you can have every Joe, Ted and Sally posting whatever interests them and whatever they feel is true or whatever they're wanting to share, because there is no content regulation aside from Facebook calls it sort of basic standards of decency. So involving things like nudity or... Um, threats of violence. Otherwise, 
it's for Joe to share to Sally. And Facebook has consistently maintained and been correct in their position that they are not responsible for what people post on their platform. And that has been affirmed repeatedly by Section 230. And when Mark Zuckerberg testified before Congress in the aftermath of the 2016 election cycle, where we saw a lot of disinformation and untruths that grew quickly and exponentially based on the way Facebook uses its algorithm and promotes posts that have engagement, whether that's anger or support. Congress tried to really pin him on this, right? Why won't you take responsibility for the things that are going on here? Why didn't you stop them? Why didn't you do A, B, or C? And he essentially said, because you haven't made me. That, that is essentially what he said. He said, you know, you created these protections within the Communications and Decency Act. I am abiding by them. You are now telling me I should abide by something different. If you wish that to be true, change it. And this happened in 2018. And there wasn't really much that happened until actually just 10 days ago. And so the Senate committee held a hearing, the Senate Commerce Committee, about Section 230 on October 28th. 2020. And they are now discussing what changes would need to be made, how we could roll it back, how we could critique the existing provisions and how they could be updated. And Facebook, because Mark Zuckerberg was at that hearing, said, we support transparency, we support industry collaboration, we support a lot of the proposals currently being discussed. And, you know, we will comply with the law once it is changed. There was a process to introduce what was called the FOSTA Act in 2018, which was a process that actually removed Section 230 protections from applying to prostitution and sex work laws. And Facebook was quite well equipped to deal with that. Other sites, think of Backpage or Craigslist, that was a big problem because they weren't regulating those types of conduct and content. And so Facebook has said, yeah, you change it. And we will we will help. And so finally, now we have uh, the U.S. Congress saying, OK, yeah, if, if that's what it's going to take, we'll look at revising that law. And so I think that's what will change in terms of holding companies like Twitter and Facebook to account for the content that is posted on their platforms. I know many folks want Facebook to take a significantly stronger role in eliminating harmful content, but they have been consistent in that it's not always as clear what constitutes harmful conduct, right? With nudity, we can say it's pretty clear. There's a line. They've now changed their policy as it relates to Holocaust uh, denial. Said, okay, we've decided where the line is. But other things for them were a little bit grayer and they didn't want to feel like they were the knowledge police that they you were sort of deciding arbitrarily what was true in Silicon Valley had to be true in West Virginia or North Carolina or Bogota for that matter. And so they've really sort of resisted the urge to do it independently. And so I think if the U.S. Congress forces these institutions to take disinformation into their own hands, they will. With the news media, it's different. So the Communications Decency Act does not apply to the news media, because the news media, let's say we're talking about the Washington Post, for example, they have a URL, that's great, they run their own domains, and they are responsible for the content that they post on that domain. And there are laws surrounding the content that they post. So you can't engage in libel, you can't engage in defamation, you have to be very, very careful, and the lines are much clearer 
as to yes, acceptable publishable content and no unacceptable not publishable content. And this is why I've actually been really happy and and proud of how the US networks have handled the election results, because historically, the media is free to report on things that are occurring. And it is occurring that President Trump is disputing the results of the election. But they have broad latitude in deciding what constitutes public interest and where public interest is trumped, uh, in this case, um, by threats of harm. And they have decided in this instance that public interest is outweighed by the risk of informing individuals inappropriately. And so this is why we see Fox News cutting away from briefings surrounding the election results, because they cannot independently verify those results and they believe them to be a fabrication. And so they have decided we will not air on our news networks information that we know to be false. And that is not a stand that they've taken before surrounding politicians. We know that politicians are masters in deception and not always telling the truth. And so this hasn't been a line Prior. But we do see it like in that Proud Boys article from The Guardian, this idea of quarantining or engaging in this clear silence surrounding these issues can be exceptionally powerful. We know that airtime to ideas is like putting oxygen on a fire. And so uh, we learned very quickly in the 1920s and 30s that when we gave Uh, white supremacist organizations a platform, they would take that platform and they would get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And so the news media decided this is not in the public interest. This is unacceptable in our purview. So we, instead of reporting on everything the KKK does or wants to do or thinks or every statement they make, we're going to only report on things that don't go well for them. Uh, Rallies where nobody shows up, for example, times when they were confronted successfully. And what you see is with a lack of oxygen, with a lack of coverage, the numbers dwindle, nobody's interested, people don't think about whether or not they should be joining the KKK, if that's an ideology they support, they just ignore it. And so that dwindles membership. And we could see that very clearly again. And I think that's what the news media's approach is with this election. If we starve President Trump of oxygenated fuel for his theory that there is fraud that is rampant in this election, it will that fire will burn out because it, there is no evidence. It will be unsuccessfully um, put forward in the court system. The courts will quash it. And so, so long as we can just deny that fire uh, oxygen to breathe, we can we can legitimate the the results of the election and we can be confident in the integrity of that process. And so this isn't really a radical or revolutionary idea. There are tons of stories the news media get all the time that are about things that they might decide, even just journalistically, not particularly interested, not going to have good readership. So for, for them to decide that, you know, this is a decision they have to make with the president is unprecedented. And so if we can, if we can use selective silence to starve any bad ideas, but up to including the president's bad ideas, then we can certainly use it uh, and bring it back uh, against white supremacist organizations. And so I think we will see significant pushback from the news media now. And we have in the last, uh, in the run up to the election, really the news media stories that were focused on in the run up to the election was the election and coronavirus, which are the two pressing most important issues, I would say, that are currently dominating the American landscape. 
and you know whether or not Gavin McInnes from the Proud Boys mm-hmm. wants to have a rally over here where 30 people go and cause a disturbance, who cares, right? We don't. We that should not be national news. That is not nationally relevant. And so uh, a recognition that perhaps these entities aren't worth the coverage that we're giving them will begin the process of delegitimizing them. That is a great note to end on. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Murchison. You are so welcome. I look forward to coming back one day. For more information about 1050 Bascom, visit polisci.wisc.edu and search for 1050 Bascom. 1050 Bascom is edited by Adam Wigger and Sam Beisman, produced by Amy Gangle and recorded remotely for now.